Bitcoin's security guarantee comes from the direct conversion of unforgeable energy into a fixed supply unit on an incorruptible monetary network. There is no alternative that exists that is more sound, efficient, effective, and rooted in the physical laws of the very universe itself. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Uh, we've got some, uh, today's read is, got some politics, got some government theory, got a theory of morals and the economy. We've got the disease of fiat, all of it coming today in Alex Fetsky's piece, Fiat, Fascism, and Communism. Get ready. Uh, probably going to be triggering to some people, probably going to be uh, epic to others, but it is a great one, and I've got almost an hour-long guy's take after this one, so get ready. Uh, and I was planning on doing it sometime soon, but uh, thank you to everyone who voted on bitcoinaudible.com slash vote. Uh, if you want to play around with Lightning, I've had a friend, his username is supertestnet, and he has built a really cool Lightning tool for me, and it's just a way to throw some sats at what you want to hear next. And it gives me a feedback, it gives me a way that you guys can actually participate in the show and let me know what you want me to read. Um, and uh, Alex Fetsky's piece uh, definitely took the throne uh, over the weekend, so I figured I would jump right on it for you guys. Check that out if you want to play around with it. Um, it is also open source. I've got the link there for anybody to go check it out or download it for their own website. And I'm going to be hopefully funding and building a lot of other new things and it all is going to be open source and I want to build a lot of stuff on Lightning because it's just so much fun. I think there's massive potential here. So hopefully this is a taste of many, many more things to come. Uh, real quick, before we get into today's piece, let's hit our sponsors. We have the lovely Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. It is a Swiss vault built with Swiss security in mind for your Swiss bank account in your pocket. Uh, it is an excellent open source and very easy to use hardware wallet. Uh, and if you want to hold your own keys, the Bitbox O2 is the way to do it. Guy, G-U-Y, discount code gets you 5% off. And our other wonderful sponsor, swanbitcoin.com. Throw a slash guy up there for $10 free in sats to start your automatic, no hassle, set it once and forget it, Bitcoin savings plan. It automatically withdraws to my multi-sig, and I also get the opportunity to instant buy by just running up to the website and smashing buy whenever I get a great opportunity. It is literally the way to stack sats. Check them both out at guyswan, swan with two N's, dot com. They're right at the top of the page. All right. Without further ado, let's get into today's read, number 523, and it is titled Fiat, Fascism, and Communism by Alexander Svetsky Bitcoin, Freedom, and Sovereignty An article on why moving into Bitcoin is not just an economic imperative, but a moral duty. To truly fight the Leviathan known as the state, 
we must first starve it of its most important source of nutrition, economic input. Economic input is simply a measure of the time and energy that the constituents of a society input. It's a measure of the productive capacity of all human action that generates value. It's literally the collective lifeblood of all individuals in society and, as such, its most important asset. The state consumes or steals an ever-growing amount of input, like a parasite, via its many machinations. It has overt methods, such as taxation, to do this, but also more covert methods, such as inflation, via its monopoly on money. In much the same way, it also claims monopolistic authority over ethics and morality, imposing regulations and controls in areas it absolutely does not belong. For example, the plants people may want to consume. Consequentially, a system emerges in which the incentives skew toward blind consumerism over sustainable productivity, substantiated by the creation of endless fantasy economic models designed to borrow from the future, steal from the present, and ignore the past. The result? Destruction of our natural resources. The obliteration of individual values. Mindless consumerism. Misallocated time, energy, and intellectual resources. Rampant speculation. Unnatural inequality. Instead of 80-20, we get 99.9 and 0.1. Extreme corruption at the top. Complete sloth, hopelessness, and victimization at the bottom. Nihilism and futility in the middle class. A world without a moral compass or a vision for the future. An unfair game. It is monopoly control over the unit by which we measure the product of our labor and coordinate the creation of value that allows the state to do so much damage. By owning, issuing, and mandating what is money, they are able to set up the rules of the game so that no matter what happens, heads they win, Tales everyone else loses. It's an incredible system, one that any rational mind would love to take advantage of given the opportunity. But it's a power absolutely no one should have, lest the world devolve into a collectivist dystopia every few generations. By ripping the control of money from the hands of any organization, state, individual, or institution, we ensure that all are playing the game of life by the same set of rules. Rules that give rise to civilization and reward each individual for their time, energy, and innovative contributions. This is the ultimate equality of opportunity. By using, supporting, and interacting with government-issued fiat money, you are directly supporting a system that attempts to artificially manufacture a modern, immobile, feudal state that is a blend of fascism, communism, authoritarianism, socialism, colonialism, and globalism. This hell is one in which equality of outcome is promised, placating the non-productive with a pittance whilst robbing every productive member of society. By strip-mining the very soul from humans at the individual level, 
This broken system destroys humanity at the collective. We must fight back, and in order to do so, we must fight fiat. You fix the money, you fix the world. Fiat Collectivism Humans are social creatures, and we naturally form groups or tribes along similar values. This is natural, and it's an emergent feature of society in the original sense of the term. Collectivism by fiat is a totally different beast. It's the abhorrent idea that the group, its identity, and its values can be mandated by some decree, and that the individuals of which it is compromised are just insignificant parts subservient to the whole. Collectivism comes in many forms. The most corrupt and unsustainable forms must be supported with lies, the worst being lies about economic reality, which can last longer with a monopoly on fiat money. The Hydra of Collectivism, with the heads of Communism, Marxism, Racism, Nationalism, and Fascism. All as the enemy of individualism. A quick overview on each follows. Socialism. The idea that a central authority has the magical ability to know what each member of their society wants or needs, and should therefore transfer the wealth generated by one group to another all whilst wasting a significant portion of it, whether through incompetence, corruption, or misallocation. It is not concerned with creating wealth, but redistributing it as whoever the ruler at the time is sees fit. This is the most prevalent version of modern governance because it underpins the rest of the models I'll mention below. Communism. A more extreme version of socialism Communism simply takes the redistribution of wealth to a more primitive level. Instead of socializing the wealth that others have had the capacity to produce, it attempts to artificially distribute the core resources which individuals would have turned into wealth. This is why poverty and shortages are so prevalent in communist states. They don't even get to the wealth creation stage because there is no mechanism to measure supply or demand in their, quote, market, if one can even call it that, nor is there the freedom to actually go out and create value for another because the state has already determined what your rations are. Communism is the arrogant assumption that a group of bureaucrats can decide what everyone everywhere could possibly want or need at all times and magically give it to them. If you need proof as to whether or not it works, see communism's track record over the past century. Hundreds of attempts all around the world, greater than 250 million dead, mass starvation, mass poverty, continual hyperinflation, families, capital, societies, and resources destroyed. Democracy Democracy is the silly idea that just because everyone else wants something, you should want it too. Four out of five citizens love democracy, with an image of four people beating a fifth. It's like a giant ash experiment, and whilst it works at small scales where the bulk of people's values are aligned, when it gets larger, it simply devolves into mob rule and the oppression Olympics. Democracy gives one the illusion that they can make a difference, but in reality places the disembodied collective above the corporeal individual. It is a phantom menace in which imaginary public law 
takes precedent over private individual property rights via a set of positivist legislations that bureaucrats perpetually create to appease the mob or benefit the lobbyists. At scale, it's likely the most insidious of governance systems because it's just socialism with the illusion of choice. With a veneer of freedom, the productive members of society are given just enough rope to hang themselves. They have room to create wealth, but with time, more and more will be stolen unless they clue into the game, get close to the monetary and legislative spigot, and begin to build a Cantillon moat. The Cantillon Effect The primary benefactors of monetary stimulus get to spend the money first, before the effects of increased money supply, inflation, manifest in the market. Perhaps its most dangerous aspect is the normalization that you have a claim on another's property or will, making it a more sophisticated way of stealing from others or claiming that which is not yours. Therein lies the unraveling of democracy. At scale, it will always devolve into a corrupt version of capitalist socialism, where a politically connected few can privatize the gains, socialize any losses, and enslave the middle-class engine. The good get robbed, the bad get rewarded, the mobs start rioting. Fascism this is the even dumber idea that government bureaucrats can force private industry to do and build what it is they want, when, and for what price. It's most effective for military-type dictatorships where innovation and production happens by force. It's the most overtly violent when in full bloom, as we've no doubt seen in the past century thanks to Hitler and Mussolini. And whilst it's framed as a, quote, far-right ideology, it's got far more in common with all of the above than with almost any form of conservatism. In fact, it's just another flavor of socialism. Nazi equals National Socialist German Workers' Party. The interesting thing about modern America is that it resembles fascism in many ways. Big pharma, big agriculture, defense, transport, energy, healthcare, and a series of other primary industries are either told what to do by their government overlords, or are merely an extension of it. Blends Of course, there are blends of each of the above. China is a prime example of an authoritarian blend of communism and fascism. The room they make for capitalist wealth generation is simply a mechanism for feeding the state. Deng Xiaoping realized this early on and saved China from a certain USSR-type implosion. Has China gotten strong through its approach? For now, yes. Is it something the world should aspire toward? Absolutely not, lest we want to live in some high-tech dystopian version of 1984. Thank you, fiat. All of the above is made possible by fiat money. If the state cannot feed itself, it cannot fund itself. If it cannot fund itself, then it cannot perpetuate the crimes it continues to commit. This is the core of the game. You and I cannot win a game of Monopoly if there is a player who plays the bank. The best we can hope to do is make friends with the banker and join him in screwing everyone else over. That's where we are today.
On a fiat money standard, the incompetent fools in government and its cronies or affiliates can continue to fund themselves with the wealth we and our future generations produce. They will keep trying to substantiate their existence by getting in the way of free individuals, by robbing one Peter to pay four Pauls under the guise of the greater good. And when that doesn't work, they will resort to violence or force to get what they want. The state rules. Heads I win, tails you lose. Bitcoin fixes this. On a Bitcoin standard, none of the above can exist at scale. On a local level, people can orient themselves in whatever way they want. In fact, a communal approach, communism, is probably ideal at the scale of the immediate family, and perhaps even up to the level of the extended family and friends. Any further, and the lack of private property will guarantee that conflict ensues, and it will devolve into a tragedy of the commons. Democracy suffers from similar scaling problems. When what can be voted on is limited to a few areas, then it may scale further than some of the other models, but much of the political polarization and hostility we see today are a result of too much in our lives being impacted by how someone else votes. What Bitcoin changes is not the governance models themselves, but by creating a hard monetary standard, it holds them accountable. By anchoring the system to economic reality, it cannot create fantasies or collective illusions in which to perpetuate lies or carry out large-scale theft, overt or covert. By fixing the money, Bitcoin realigns the base incentives at the individual and collective level. The trickle-down effect then fixes many things gone awry in the world. Let's explore a few key things. Social mobility. This is perhaps the biggest and most persistent of problems to plague humanity in a social sense. Feudalism and caste systems exist today just like they did millennia ago, only in a different form. Inequality is not a problem when you have social mobility. In fact, it's desirable because it's what makes the world diverse. So many people miss this, even those I admire, like Jordan Peterson. With Bitcoin, for the first time in history, the social strata becomes truly dynamic. The capacity to move upwards exists because those at the bottom can officially save. And just as importantly, if not more importantly, downward mobility exists because those at the top can no longer socialize their losses when they fuck up. Skin is inextricably in the game for everybody and there is no possibility for an unfair advantage. If you add more value, do more work, provide a better service, build a better product, or make better choices in life, you will climb. If you consume more than you produce, if you are wasteful, if you make bad investment decisions, if you blow all your money on hookers and coke, then guess what? You can't print any more money or tax others to pay for your losses you will fall down the social ladder. And that's exactly as it should be. This is true equality. True equality is equality in probability. Nassim Nicholas Taleb An excerpt from Skin in the Game is very apt here also. Quote, 
Dynamic or ergodic inequality takes into account the entire future and past life. You do not create dynamic equality just by raising the level of those at the bottom, but rather by making the rich rotate or by forcing people to incur the possibility of creating an opening. The way to make society more equal is by forcing through skin in the game the rich to be subjected to the risk of exiting from the 1%. The Environment The fiat monetary system has a devastating impact on the environment. The state burns up an incredible amount of our natural resources, and the majority of it is complete waste. Think about the amount of money, remember money equals resources, whether present or future, spent on the following. Defense and military. Government, regulatory, and judicial system. Banking, payments, and financial system. Wall Street. Subsidizing materials which kill the earth, cheap plastics. Blind consumerism. The top four listed above are what it takes to ensure the fiat monetary system operates. Remember that money is a system of trust, and the only reason the USD preserves some form of value is because it is, quote, backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. In other words, the entire government, banking, judicial, and military-industrial complex exists to back the dollar. And that's not counting the rest of the countries around the world and the copious amounts of paper, cotton, plastics, and metals used to mint, quote, money. That's a lot of wasted resources. I'd strongly suggest a review of Hass McCook's work on the environmental impact of different monetary systems. Link included. Waste, waste, waste. The global economy is a closed system. If one group can conjure money up out of thin air, it dilutes the money, read finite resources, of the group that did not. If there is not enough money to overtly or covertly steal today, the state borrows from the future to pay for the present. And what do you think the asset supporting the future is? Yep, you guessed it. It's more finite human and natural resources. Remember that money measures time, energy, and finite natural resources. Creating it out of thin air and wasting it is literally how you destroy those resources. This cannot happen when money is fixed and incorruptible. It can only happen as a direct consequence of the state's decree on money. Junk. Plastics are another prime example of the ramifications of fiat. Why do you think they're so cheap? It's not just because they're mass-produced for blind consumers who are hell-bent on spending what they have because their time preference is so skewed, but plastic manufacturers are directly subsidized by their government alongside the larger petrodollar system. On a hard money standard, people are not only more discerning with respect to where they spend their hard-earned money, which in itself would solve much of the waste problem, but in the absence of government handouts, the real cost of plastics and other disposable junk would be much higher. These ridiculous face diapers are another example. 30 billion of them are disposed of every month that we've been able to estimate, all over a set of absurd mandates decreed by overweight bureaucratic hysterics who care not what the consequences of their decisions are. And that's not counting the incredible waste of materials that have been ripped out of the earth to make chairs 
bathrooms, restaurants, and a countless quantum of infrastructure that is not being used. Just go to an airport, and every second chair, toilet, tap, and urinal is just sitting there. Waste. Want to help slow and reverse the damage being done to the planet? Quit supporting fiat money. Not only do you help slow the amount of resources being wasted, but you also opt into using a form of money that does not require the multi-trillion dollar Wall Street and military-industrial complex to back it. Bitcoin is pure energy money. It has no waste. Fiat's guarantee comes from the promise of an archaic, wasteful, and morally bankrupt series of institutions that care about nothing but themselves and are willing to rape, pillage, and loot to stay in power. Bitcoin's security guarantee comes from the direct conversion of unforgeable energy into a fixed supply unit on an incorruptible monetary network. There is no alternative that exists that is more sound, efficient, effective, and rooted in the physical laws of the very universe itself. Health Fiat food and fiat medicine are another phenomenon made possible by fiat money. Denatured fake foods are the direct result of government-subsidized, large-scale, industrial, quote, food manufacturing. Whether those subsidies come in the form of direct tax cuts, low-interest rate loans backed by the government, regulatory moats, or the flood of fake money flowing into the publicly listed companies selling this sludge. Before fiat, we cultivated the land, we respected the soil, we ate naturally grown foods. Today, 95% of the junk you can buy at a supermarket can barely pass as food. And the little that does has been denatured with God knows what sorts of hormones, pesticides, herbicides, or chemicals. And let us not mention the damage that monocrop and or GMO farming has done to the planet, the precious topsoil, the rainforests, and the biosphere. All of this proudly made possible by yours truly, fiat money. The corporate leviathans who benefit most from this only have the capacity to do what they do thanks to their proximity to the state and its printing press. The same goes for the entire pharmaceutical industry. People have come to believe that disease is the absence of drugs and that health is just another pharma-manufactured pill away. Fiat medicine has numbed everyone into submission and alongside its partner in crime, Fiat Food, it breeds physically dependent and incapacitated victims who can no longer live without them. It's a sad state of affairs and one in which the numbers paint a clear picture. 1971 is when the USD came off the gold standard and became an unhinged fiat currency. And here he has a few graphs. One of trends in obesity among children and adolescents aged from 2 to 19 years old showing around an average increase from 5% of the population to 20% of the population, a 4x increase just in percent. And then we have a chart of the staggering increase in national health expenditures in the billions of dollars, which starts at such a low number in the 1970s that it's hard to even put anything to it. It's kind of meaningless on the chart. It looks basically like zero and then it has ballooned up to $5 trillion in the 50-year span. You should definitely check it out if you want to see those charts, along with a lot of other graphics and uh, some kind of funny memes that are throughout this. 
uh, definitely go to the link in the show notes and check out Alex uh, Svetsky's article. If we want to once again take control of our health, we have to move onto a hard money standard. We need to build strong humans with real nutritious food on fertile soil out in the sun, independent of these maniacal state-sponsored institutions that want to turn us all into zombies, figuratively and perhaps literally speaking. Education. This is another area that will flourish in the absence of state-sponsored shenanigans. Schooling originally emerged as a way to prepare people for production lines, and in some cases for the army. It had merit at the time, and perhaps its early incarnations were a legitimate attempt to standardize a basic education across the board. A rising tide lifts all boats, so to speak. Whatever the initial intentions, it's not where we are today. There is a big difference between schooling and education. Education is something we experience naturally. Humans are learning and problem-solving machines. Our education starts as soon as we're born, and it continues on throughout our life. It does not require a school. Schooling is the attempt to standardize and streamline education at scale. It's useful in many ways, and especially early on in a child's life when learning some basics is valuable. Its biggest drawback is that it incentivizes rote learning and memorization as opposed to real education due to the nature of its standardization. This becomes even more of a problem when the schooling curriculum is designed and mandated by the state. Schooling, courtesy of the state, has devolved into state indoctrination. It is no longer about education, nor is it even about systematized education in the traditional sense of the word school. Today, it's about taking young, impressionable children and beating all of the individuality and free spirit out of them. It's a sausage machine, teaching them how to conform, feeding them propaganda like inflation is normal, the government is great, white people are evil, or you need a degree to succeed. It then encourages them to join some university so they can start their adult lives under a mountain of debt, debt they'll never be able to repay, owed to an institution further indoctrinating them in some crazy political ideology. Sounds like fun, right? And how is this all funded? Yep, you guessed it, via taxation and inflation. If I want to teach my own kids, and over time select a la carte what they have a natural predisposition to excel at and double down on it, I am a criminal. If the state wants to turn your kids into a blind zombie, running in a rat race they cannot finish, and remain subservient to the government, they are heroes. I see a future where education becomes the focus once again, where parents can choose early on which key subjects they'd like to send their kids to and pay for a la carte. As their kids grow up and latch onto different topics or develop skills, they can be more involved in the selection process of what they want to do and learn. In the absence of state-induced poverty, i.e. taxation and inflation, you can pay for what you feel is important for your child to learn, and education itself will continue to trend toward a lower and lower cost. In fact, you can already get a better education from YouTube for free today than you can from any state school. Furthermore, the best educators and specialists in their fields 
will create their own bespoke, unique curriculums that those who want to, can afford to, or show promise can attend. Want to see a new renaissance? This is how it happens. We move on to Bitcoin. We defund the state. Business and free markets. Markets are nodes in society where people from all walks of life meet to learn, transact, and trade. Markets have existed since the beginning of time, and the medium via which information permeates is called price. When you have high-fidelity information, you can make better decisions, and with better decisions, you can add more value, produce better products, provide better services, and more efficiently use scarce resources. Fiat money distorts prices, and therefore distorts markets. Buyers can no longer adequately assess the value of what they want to acquire, whilst producers are confused about what to build, create, or sell because they have no clear indication of demand. This creates a significant amount of unnecessary waste and a huge amount of misallocated capital when it comes to investment and entrepreneurship. Shit we don't need gets built, funded, and sold to us, especially in the realm of finance and tech, because they're low-hanging fruits that benefit most from the unlimited supply of fake money. The economy begins to look like a deformed human with fake muscle in all the wrong places. By the way, he's got a picture of, uh, if you haven't seen it, of a guy who literally has a bunch of fake like plastic muscles that look absolutely insane. Uh, so if you want to go to the link in the show notes and see it, if you haven't seen it, it's just something else. Okay, let's jump back in. Entrepreneurs are the lifeblood of any and all economies, and by definition, they are problem solvers and opportunists. They see a problem, they then build a product or service to solve it. They see an opportunity, and they capitalize on it. When the market signals are all out of whack because the government is willy-nilly funding whatever agenda it sees fit this month, or the fake money printed by central banks flows into Wall Street and is invested in the NASDAQ or some VCs, what do you think entrepreneurs will do? They will go where the gold is, further exacerbating the deformity of the market. Once again, Bitcoin fixes this. In the absence of false price signals and fake markets, consumers think twice about what they want to buy and are clear on why they need it, whilst producers get a real, organic gauge of what the needs of the marketplace are and will go to solve those problems. You know, things like poverty, or starvation in Africa, or homelessness in America, or quality food and farming worldwide, or better ways to extract energy from scarce resources. Savings The capacity to save and securely store the product of one's labor is the cornerstone of civilization. Words and language do this for knowledge in the same way as money does it for capital, capital being defined as condensed resources and energy. Imagine not being able to transmit the lessons of today to tomorrow. If we didn't have language, we would never have evolved, and each generation would repeat what the prior generation had experienced. It's the same with money, savings, and capital. 
We cannot build upon the past nor stand on the shoulders of giants if we are unable to preserve our capital. If we continually waste, redistribute, squander, or dilute our capital, we not only slam the brakes on societal progress and burn up the planet's scarce environmental resources, but we malign the incentives of all individuals to produce and save. Instead, people become blind consumers because the fantasy that is fiat suggests, quote, there's more where that came from, we can just print it. Others become rabid speculators chasing the next get-rich-quick scheme in an effort to outrun the endless devaluation of their savings. Both are behaviors that add no value to society, which further dampen or skew societal progress and waste precious resources. A fixed supply, incorruptible money, makes saving great again. When an individual knows they can save, they can better plan for the future. Savings gives us more control over when and how much we want to work. It lowers the anxiety we all feel about the uncertainty of what lies ahead. It allows us to think long-term and pass the marshmallow test. Furthermore, when the purchasing power of money reflects the overall growth in society's productive capacity, people want to save. This lowers time preference and increases the amount of thought we put into the things we buy. You are less likely to spend your money on shit. It ensures that we maximize efficient use of precious resources to produce things of value. You're more likely to build for quality equals less waste. This is how strong individuals, communities, and societies are built from the ground up. Emergent, organic, robust. It all starts with saving, which is just another way of saying delayed gratification or the lowering of time preference. True Equality of Opportunity as mentioned earlier, social mobility may be the most important aspect of a functional society. Inequality is perfectly natural, and we see it everywhere, but it's dynamic and ever-changing. That's what life is, a diverse array of experiences, all representing some form of fractal 80-20 Pareto distribution. Whatever you look at, the birds, the trees, the animal kingdom, music, sports, intellect, effort, skill, whatever, there is no one-size-fits-all. This is why equality of outcome is abhorrent and downright disgusting. Equality of opportunity, on the other hand, is something worth aspiring toward, but in many ways a fantasy, because unless we nuke the entire planet and start from scratch, Everyone everywhere is always going to start from a different point with different influences, skills, talents, resources, and natural predispositions. Furthermore, we live in the bounds of a world where scarce resources are unevenly distributed around the earth. We cannot change this. Equality of opportunity is thus an impossible goal, especially because it is so poorly defined. This is where Bitcoin saves the day once more. A common, incorruptible monetary standard is the only form of equality of opportunity that is possible or that matters. Measurable human action must be a standard we're all bound by. 
when each individual can store the product of their time, effort, and energy into the same unit everyone else is using, the opportunity to rise up and progress equalizes. I want you to think about this for a moment. There is no greater force for social progress than this. Corruption and theft is the source of poverty and social regress. Bitcoin fixes this in a way nothing else on the planet can or will. In closing, fiat money may be the most damaging invention of modernity and the greatest hindrance toward our capacity as humans to transcend the challenges of our time. Whether those challenges are personal in nature, like meaning and mental well-being, or social, for example poverty, education, health, social mobility, and the environment. Fiat ensures the destruction of the individual, the environment, and the future. Its end game is always war and or revolution. Show me a regime change, and I will show you inflation. Arthur Hayes When you are starving to death, nothing else matters except feeding your family. When you work your ass off only to stand still or get poorer, you will either riot or flock toward the ism that promises food, water, and shelter. It's a one-way road to hell. In continuing to support fiat by using, holding, or promoting it, you are contributing to a broken system designed to create poverty, populism, social unrest, food riots, high and rising financial asset prices, social stagnation, and extreme wealth inequality. Moving your wealth, the precious product of your labor, into Bitcoin is not only the most intelligent economic move you will ever make, but it is the highest of moral actions. It is the ultimate fuck you to the system of serfdom we're all subject to. Join me and millions of others in unshackling the chains and becoming free, sovereign individuals. It all starts with you. All right, and that closes out fiat, fascism, and communism. And I've got a, uh, a bunch of little things that I want to add here in Guy's Take to expand or uh, kind of hit, like back up some of the perspectives that uh, he drops in this. Real quick, let's add our sponsor, and then we will jump back in. Trading is hard. Trading is addictive. Trading is unbelievably stressful. And it is the surest way to take $10,000 turn it too quickly into $100,000, and then turn that back into zero. DCA with swanbitcoin.com. I have heard that story so many times that it pains me. Bitcoin is the best performing asset since forever. There is no reason to try and beat that. You are just going to get yourself destroyed. Just stack and focus on your life. Buy automatically with Swan Bitcoin every day, week, or month. This is what I do. I've been doing it for a very long time. It is so easy. And then just it automatically sends to your keys. It withdraws to your keys automatically. You have the simplest way to prepare for a Bitcoin future. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy gets you $10 free in sats. And it's the easiest trade you will ever make. Just stack and save with swanbitcoin.com. So one of the things that, um, like, like just talking about the ideas of collectivism in general, 
Um, and all of them basically share this same idea. Well, first, it's, it's about holding the group above the individual, which makes no sense because the group is merely a collection of individuals. So if you sacrifice the individual, you've sacrificed the entire group because the only thing that is actually there are the individuals in the group. The group is just an abstraction of many individuals. The group doesn't actually exist. It's just a category. It's just an illusion of many individuals. So if you sacrifice the individual, you sacrifice the only thing that's there. And one of the fundamental flaws of these collectivist ideologies, of particularly about the concept of redistribution, is that, and Alex actually hits on this pretty great, um, one of the lines is, they aren't concerned with the creation of wealth, they are simply concerned with redistributing wealth. And more explicitly is that the very nature of the creation of wealth, the conditions necessary to create wealth, are actually destroyed during the redistribution process. So redistribution isn't merely unconcerned with creating wealth. It actually destroys the environment and the mechanisms that allow wealth to be created in the first place. So maybe an analogy is to think about it like we're all building a house together. It's all just a giant house and there's builders all over the place. People are moving in from one side to the other. There's constant shifts happening and everybody's building to make this house bigger and better and it's constantly growing. But some builders are better than others. And maybe on the right side of this giant house, the builders are better and faster than the builders on the left. So it's like lopsided. But the house is constantly growing and all the rooms are getting bigger. Everything is still getting more prosperous, but it's not getting prosperous at a perfectly even ratio. Um, Alex mentions it a few times in this is that the natural tendency of imbalances of inequalities is the Pareto distribution. Is that 20% does 80% of the work and the other 80% does 20% of the work. 20% gets 80% of the reward, 20% does 80% of the book sales, 80% does the, 20, the other 20%. It's a very, very common thing. We see it all over the place. We see it in nature. We see it in just about every possible industry that you could think of. The few examples that in which this doesn't naturally come about are when things are manipulated, are when specifically in like the fiat monetary scenario when prices are so distorted that you get this extreme Kantian effect and you get it where 1%, 0.1% of the population has so much outsized power and influence that the Pareto distribution falls apart and society goes with it. As soon as it seems to produce unnatural results, it is because there is an unnatural source of imbalance and it will correct. Reality is always going to come back. The, the laws and the tendencies of the universe are going to expose themselves. They're going to ultimately decide what is and isn't. And we are currently in that situation. We're having to deal with the fact that we have manipulated things to a ridiculous degree and those bills are coming due. But back to the, back to the house example is that, you know, we have this Pareto distribution. We have the house is lopsided. But again, everybody in the house is concerned and wholly focused on building the house, making the house better, learning how to build the house, learning how to make better use of the space, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody is on the task of making things better because everybody has skin in the game. Everyone gets exactly what they build. 
Everyone is responsible for their own livelihoods and their own knowledge and choices in this great game of building our house, making it bigger and better. Socialism, collectivism, redistribution is a mechanism of taking the builders away from the job of building the house and instead allocating them toward tearing down the large side of the house in order to transfer it to the small side of the house. And what actually happens is resources are taken away from actually making the house bigger and better. So now the wood just starts to rot. The conditions for learning how to be a better builder, for how to get into the better rooms, start to transition from actually being skilled and actually having, uh, making the right choices. And instead, how do we make sure I'm the one that gets the important contract for redistributing the wood from A to B? It's not about being better. It's not about having better tools or being more efficient. Suddenly, it's about who's closest to the managers that are in control of redistributing the house. And so instead of working together, now we're fighting each other. Now we're fighting over where the wood is going to be reallocated. The unfinished parts are getting weathered and they're falling into disrepair. The buildings are fighting over control of the managers. It's like a sport where everyone is fighting to be closer to the refs and having their, having their plays called according to what the ref wants to have happened in the game rather than playing the game by the same rules. The refs just get to make up what the consequences of the game are. Who wins and who loses? Who gets points? Who has the ball? And so whoever is closest to the ref, whoever, we're playing the ref, we're playing each other as people rather than playing the game of creating wealth. Those collectivist systems don't redistribute wealth at the cost of the rich to the benefit of the poor. They redistribute wealth at the cost of the very mechanism by which wealth creation is incentivized. It stops the world from getting better in order to reallocate all the crap that we have today. And think about what this does about how you think of the people around you. You know, in the individualist scenario where everybody is responsible for themselves and everybody is working to build this house, everyone's a benefit to each other. You don't have to be a, you don't have to be a burden on another person. It doesn't mean that we're all equal doesn't mean, you know, equal opportunity is something to strive for, but there's no, there is absolutely no ghost of a chance of equality, of certainly not the equality of outcome. I mean, take two people, take siblings who grew up in the same situation, take twins for crying out loud, who have even have the same genetics, grew up under the same parents in the same neighborhood with all the same conditions, all the same privileges and opportunities, and look at them when they're 40 years old. Why aren't their situations always equal? How often, if not always, are you going to get it where there's an unequal situation? That one of them is married and has kids and another is, you know, working on their career. That just things are different. Things are always different. If you can't get it with siblings under the same roof in the same situation in the same neighborhood, how in the hell do you think that we're going to create some massive authority that will take away everybody's rights and reallocate it across 3,000 miles of people in completely different situations who completely value things differently and have whole different views on life? How is that ever going to work? It is, it is a pipe dream of such ridiculousness 
It's less believable than The Little Mermaid. It just, it's such a fantasy of nonsense. And the cost, at what trade-off, what, what do you lose? What do you risk by creating a massive central authority that has the power to ruin or make anyone's lives? I mean, so often the excuse given for why we need a system like that is that people are selfish and greedy. Who do you think are going to run that system? Who do you think are going to be the ones that desperately want to have control over everyone else's lives that, that strongly and to that degree? There's nothing but corruption at the end of that road. There is nothing but destitution at the end of a system like that. And again, going back to the individualist scenario, you're not a burden on somebody else. It means that when we live by our own responsibility and get to reap the rewards, the rewards of our decisions, when we all have skin in the game, every new person is a potential builder. Every new person is someone who could contribute to the world and make something that others can't. And the diversity of their experience, of their perspective, the fact that they're looking from down below rather than up top or from the side, the, the, the fact that they have a different viewpoint of the world, a different worldview, could let them see something that nobody else can. Everybody is a benefit to another person. The, the benefit of having, you know, 200 idiots means that we might end up with one genius that's going to solve everybody else's problems or solve a problem to the magnitude that it makes up for a thousand people having been made. Saifedean talks about this in uh, one of his things that it's a numbers game. Innovation and free markets, the ability to cooperate and everybody have skin in the game, means that the incentives are aligned that such... It's not a problem to have more population because that's more chances for people to figure out how to solve all of our problems. It's more brains on the job. And then the market gets to evaluate the benefits. It gets, we get to share all of that information with each other because without sharing it, we get no value out of it. That's how you reap the reward in the market. You make it available to other people. And yet you flip that around and look at the socialist environment. You've destroyed the very mechanism that creates wealth to begin with. Growth dies and the focus on actually building things better goes away and suddenly we're turned inward. We're focused on who it is that we should take it from. What we focus on is who we become. This is why these systems create such hate and division between people. And suddenly there is this sense that every new person in society is just a burden. It's just somebody who's going to take another subsidy from me, who's going to be a new welfare recipient that everybody else is going to be taxed for. It's a new obligation for those who are working their butts off and trying to make their lives better. So the incentive to build and prosper has been stripped away from everyone. You know, doing the work and actually being productive is hard. Nobody wants to do it. That's why everybody just wants the handout. The very nature that there are more people clamoring for handouts than there are people asking for equality of how much time we spend working and how much we produced is proof of this. So when they say, oh, everybody will just keep producing, oh, there's no reason that they would stop working. Innovation wouldn't stop. Well, then why aren't you, de why aren't you demanding that you be held to the accountability of innovating as much or producing as much as those other people? 
Why is that not what we're clamoring for? Why is it not equality of production, but instead it's equality of consumption? I don't know. It just seems, it just seems so contradictory to, like, it feels like an excuse, right? Is that everybody wants something for nothing. But the idea that I, like, like let's say I, I'm in a situation where I want to get tax money from somebody else, right? There's some rich billionaire. And I claim that if we take that person's money and give it to me, that this will be hugely beneficial because I am incentivized to want to be able to consume without producing, but that somehow the opposite is not true, that they will not stop producing if they don't get the consumption. Like those are two sides of the same coin, right? It's like saying that, oh, the ball is falling because it was dropped, but if the ball is dropped, it's not going to fall. You know, Thomas Sowell um, uh, had a really great interview one time that talked about like, like how to, like where so many of those ideologies just completely go wrong, like where they, their fundamental problems are. And it's this idea that there is just a solution to a thing and that there's no cost or that we shouldn't be thinking or talking about the cost at all. And that to be, to think like genuine economics to understand the core principles of economics is to understand that literally everything is a trade-off. There is no solution. There is, we can do something in order to get something else. If we want to do this thing over on the right, we have to lose this thing over on the left. Everything is a trade-off. Everything has a cost. And the idea of socialism and communism, these collectivist ideals, is that there is no actual cost, is there is just some solution where we can just hit a button and take from the right person and give to the right person, and then we can just level all this out, and then everything just works. Everything's just flat, and it's done, because we found the solution to all of the problems. And almost everything is sold that way. It's like that every single thing government does is just the net benefit of what it did. You know, the the Free Healthcare Act is just free healthcare. That's it. Those resources don't go, come from anywhere. There's no cost. It's just free healthcare. Welfare is just that. It's just more for the poor. And all everybody's situation gets better. Nothing else changes for anybody else, and the poor get wealthier. And everything else is perfectly static. Markets don't get distorted. The incentives to actually produce wealth don't get obliterated. Society doesn't degrade. There's no cost. It doesn't, it certainly doesn't hurt the poor more than it helps them. I mean, who could be against it? It's just good things for the poor and nothing else. It doesn't cost us anything. Everything is sold that way from top to bottom. There is no cost. We just write some numbers down and whole problems vanish from the face of the earth. No discussion about why the poverty exists. It's just unfortunate because we haven't written down on a piece of paper that the poverty shouldn't be there. That's why it exists, because we haven't, we haven't said it should go away yet. If we would just say it, it would vanish. And, you know, Alex uh, hits in this piece, like, then, then he goes into, like, so that's like kind of the first section of this is all about the collectivist ideals and where a lot of the fundamental misunderstandings of the economic reality are. And then he goes into democracy and there's another huge, and this was something that 
took me a really long time to break through. And it's probably just because, you know, I'm in a country, it's like, oh, democracy is great. This is freedom. And it's funny, there's a couple of really base ideological contradictions with democracy um, and assumptions that it's very odd that you don't actually think critically about because they're, they're actually really, really simple. And its own rhetoric actually destroys the foundation of whether or not it's, it is truly what it says it is. Democracy purports to be the people running the government. Politicians and bureaucrats are representatives of the people. We have delegated our rights to them. We've delegated things that they are now able to do to help society. It's our will that they are engaging in. Yet at the same time, somehow this is freedom and everybody has equal rights. Well, think about that. Just a little bit of scrutiny. And one of the, probably one of the best pieces on this is Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard, which we have read on the show. It's a really great way to think about some of the fundamental contradictions. But just one that always got me, and I think it's Rothbard or maybe Mises that broke this down, is that if we actually do have equal rights and politicians are our representatives, how, how is it that politicians can do things that people cannot do? How is it that the government has the right to steal if nobody is able to allocate that right to them? You know, I can't steal from my next door neighbor because he's got, you know, more cars than I do and they're nicer and it would be nice if I had a nicer car or more of them. I don't have the right to steal from them. Like, they are a human individual. They are responsible for their choices and their lives. They have skin in the game. If they earned and made that purchase, that's their right. I have that same right. I have that same right to my responsibilities, to my choices. Maybe I went on vacation instead of buying a car. Maybe I didn't go into debt because I thought that was a bad decision, and they did. Whatever it is, we have our individual lives, our individual choices, our individual... individual productivity and skills and we live our lives by the consequences of those and that's why those choices and decisions and skills realign when things don't work out that's the very incentive we have to change and get better if nobody has skin in the game everything stagnate stagnates everything rots all of our values all of our innovation the whole thing just starts to crumble at the bottom in the context of like a representative, I, how can I then allocate this for someone else to go steal that guy's car if I didn't have the ability to do it in the first place? And it's not like if I get everybody in the neighborhood together and we make a mob that suddenly we have the right to steal his car. No, we still do not. It's still not ours. We must live by our decisions and our lives and that person, my neighbor, gets theirs. How is it that suddenly, that because a bunch of people in our neighborhood has a representative, that now the representative has the ability to steal that car? And there's no point that the scale changes that dynamic. And just think about the absurdity of the idea that if democracy is doing something, that if the government does something, then it's the people, it's the will of the people doing it to themselves. All you have to do is think about an extreme example and, and you see how quickly that 
idea just makes no sense. You know, if Hitler was elected as a representative of the people and was engaging in the will of the people, then the Jewish population just committed suicide. There could be no wrong because it was the will of the people and it's okay for the government to do that. But again, where did they get that right? Where, how, how in any way was the government actually an extension of the people in that situation? And how is it that the government can ever do something that the citizens cannot if that's actually what the system is? Um, I mean, it's, a, it's a huge rabbit hole in and of itself, um, but I would point you to Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard. It's a really great piece, and if you like thinking about this and the structure of society and trying to break through those kind of myths about how this thing works and the silliness, you look back and it's like, I'm just a bill sitting here on Capitol. Like, that's not how any of this shit works. Like, there's lobbyists and people, like, politicians don't write bills. People give them bills, and then politicians are just hood ornaments for corporations. Like, the silly Disney cartoon-level picture that we have of how government and these institutions work just tries to hide the fact, it acts as if corruption is just never a, a, even a part of this whole world. And yet one of the most fundamental things that systems like that do is remove skin in the game, remove accountability, remove the very mechanisms that prevent or put up a wall against corruption in the first place. It's where corruption thrives in that amount of power, in that lack of accountability for your decisions, in forcing someone else to pay for the cost of your mistakes. Like that's what, that's fundamental to a monopoly on the use of violence. Anyway, um, I got a lot of other notes here. Uh, so uh, then he talks about the, so we go back to going back to the game reference is suddenly society turns into a system where everybody is playing the refs instead of getting good at the game. And suddenly the managers of the society are just the ones you want to be in the back pocket of, are the ones that you want to cater to. And suddenly it's a game of who has the most clout, who has the right friends, rather than a game of economic production, rather than a game of implementation and understanding where to solve problems, how to solve problems and create value in the world. It becomes who's best at selling the theft of value from somebody else and how do I get close to that person? Now the Cantillon effect sounds complicated and people say it's like, oh, you're close to the money spigot. Um, and so and I know a lot of you are probably familiar with it, but just in case, I want to simplify this idea, is the general idea of the Cantillon effect is that some people get to use counterfeit money and others don't. Everybody else has to earn it. One person has to earn money, the other person gets to use counterfeit money. Now, imagine that nobody else that you knew ever has the ability to print money on their home printer. But you can. You can print millions and millions and millions of dollars just out of your home printer. What would you do? That thing would be printing all day, every day, right? I mean, wh why would you not just keep printing? And you can always just use the printed money to buy more ink so you don't even have to worry about running out of a printer or running out of money. You've got the magic power to print. 
how many contractors, services, caterers, event coordinators, every possible provider and product seller, everybody in the world would be banging at your door for multi-million dollar contracts. That is the Cantillon effect. Everyone stops servicing the other customers and stops charging the prices that are affordable to the people who actually earned the money and starts charging the prices that they can charge somebody who prints the money, starts getting the contracts from the politicians. The biggest customer becomes the government who doesn't have any skin in the game, who didn't have to actually earn the money, and therefore they don't know the value of it. And therefore the very purpose of money, the very thing that it does in society to properly allocate resources, to incentivize efficiency and the creation of value, the whole thing just breaks down. Everybody's just there trying to get close to your printer. It distorts all the prices. It distorts what people are focused on. It distorts what people are building. All they are trying to do is now please you rather than the market. That is our current situation. That is what we are living under. This is not free markets. These are horribly manipulated, disgusting, inefficient, and imbalanced markets. Fiat money is the destruction of free markets. It's just doing it under the table rather than, rather than above the table. It starts at the foundation rather than by sticks and guns at the top. But it largely has the exact same influence. It has the same distorting effects. And one idea that Alex hits on in this piece too that I really, really like and I've always thought was such an interesting way to think about it is that the problem with these systems isn't inherent to the system itself. It's inherent to how it scales and or the lack thereof. He says that you know communism or socialism actually makes a lot of sense and might be the most efficient or the most maybe egalitarian is the word form of governance in an extremely local situation like with your family maybe with maybe even with your friends where you have skin in the game where you care where you are very closely tied to and you understand the costs and how they actually perceive you they don't take you for granted if you help them out and if they start doing it you know to stop it's a very different situation, and that system might actually work at that level where everybody has the same values and understands the costs and the trade-offs because you're close to the other person that has to bear that burden. But it completely breaks down as soon as you get you know, past Dunbar's number, as soon as it's not within your group where you can know and understand your relationship with other people. As soon as you're over 100 people, the thing is a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. And there's a great quote that I uh, uh, always remembered was that, um, it, I can't remember it exactly, but it was something along the lines of, at the local level with your family, you should be a socialist. You should, um, it might make most sense to share it with everybody and to have communal costs and help each other out. At the very local, like the neighborhood or the city level, you should be a liberal. Then at the state level, you should be a conservative. And at the federal level, you should be a libertarian or an anarchist. That the larger the scale and the more distant the governance system, the less control and influence it should have. Because that control and influence is 
deeply centralizing of the costs and risks of societies, and the consequences are vastly worse than doing it at a local level when it goes wrong. And all the, the very incentives that would keep it working, potentially, or actually balance it out at a local level, don't even exist the higher up you go. And just for the people who are scared of the word anarchy, um, anarchist just means without rulers. Rules without rulers. It does not mean chaos. At least in the context of government, I know uh, the general population or the popular definition of it is just that, oh, anarchy is chaos. But anarchy from a political system means no one is in charge. There is not a master. There are rules that we agree to collectively, like actually cooperating on. Basically, it means natural law. Another thing that he brings up in this piece um, is, and this is something that I've uh, tried to use as an analogy, is just how I say that politics is divisive and hateful, which I think the general person would agree with that, though they might not get the reasons why, is when someone else is telling you how you're going to have to do something. And remember, every law, every single law is backed up by murder. And I know, you know, some people who aren't used to this idea think that's ridiculous, but it is either you comply at some level or they are willing to murder you. And this is why the law should be explicitly limited to those things that are damaging enough, the rights violations of other people that are bad enough that they actually constitute that level of violence in response. You know, a, uh, there was a, a guy who... Um, I can't remember his name. Uh, somebody shared the link just a couple of days ago or something. There was a guy who was murdered on the street for selling unregulated cigarettes. He didn't have a license, and he was literally murdered by the cops for not immediately complying. And it doesn't matter what thing if, oh, it was only going to be a $200 fine. It's about the fact that you are now a criminal. You are now seen as an enemy, and that if you do not comply with it, if you do not immediately roll over and do what you were told, your continual, whatever the process is, it's just a five-step process to get to the point where you're trying to escape prison or you're trying to escape custody and now your life is forfeit. That is the end game of every law. So the idea that we are making laws about which health insurance plan you should have or deciding you know, what products people should be forced to buy or not is insane. It is putting literal government murder at the behest of every situation, at micromanaging levels of what we do and what we say and what we think and the products that we can build or, or buy. I mean, it's just, it says like, quote, but much of the political polarization and hostility, hostility we see today are a result of too much in our lives being impacted by how someone else votes. The more that we put the government in charge of, the more we have a reason to hate our neighbor for not having our exact same values or preferences. What I say in an analogy that I typically use is that only putting the government in charge, putting the government in charge of more and more things and democracy itself is literally the type of system that could start a war over which is the best cookie. Imagine if we literally had a government program that decided the cookie that everyone should have. Right now, I do not care at all what cookies you like and what cookies you don't like. 
Maybe you like oatmeal raisin. That's crazy. Oatmeal raisin sucks. But you know what? I don't care. Because it doesn't mean that I can't buy chocolate chip cookies, whatever the hell it is. Yet the second you put it in the hands of government, suddenly 51% of the people are voting for chocolate chip cookies, and everybody who, ha who wants oatmeal cookies gets screwed. Because now they have to buy chocolate chip cookies. Now they have to pick, they have to fight to hopefully get a president that wants their same, their same cookie choice so that they can force it on the other guys. It just became, becomes a game of who has to force the other per who gets to force the other person to buy them their cookies. Only under that ridiculous system could you actually get people to murder each other over which cookie is best. That's why it creates hate and division. Because that's, that's what it is at its source. The idea that we're going to force someone else to do what we want or pay for the program that we want because how dare they not do it? How dare they live by their own values or their own choices and be responsible for their own lives? And shockingly, this is all deeply tied to the nature of money. This is all propped up and funded by the overt and covert manipulations of money, of the monopoly control over what is and is not the currency of the land and the fact that there is a monopoly institution that has a money printer that everyone else has to come and try to fight for. And there's way, way, way too much to pack, unpack in the consequences of this. Um, it hits so many different pieces, but I will touch on health just because there's so many different... I mean, a, a lot of this stuff is probably controversial. I'm sure a lot of people are like, oh, I don't agree with this or I don't agree with that, um, which, which is understandable. There's lots of different... Um, I mean, everybody has different values. Everybody chooses different things. But there is definitely something... I'm kind of amazed like how, I, how differently I see things after going down kind of a shift in how I think about food. Now, I'm not a quote-unquote carnivore like most of the people, or most, a lot of the loud people in Bitcoin are. Um, and generally, there is definitely a perspective on... You know, Saifedean talks about fiat food, and Alex talks about fiat food here. But the amount of manipulation, the amount of twisting of the actual market incentives for what we eat is huge with the consequences of fiat money and subsidies. Go into a store, go into any store, and actually look at the ingredients. It is shocking. When I first like, started to go towards like the paleo route, and think very differently about food. Uh, the, probably the book that my wife got me on that was the biggest impact early on was It Starts With Food. And it's basically about the idea that the quality and the source of everything that we put into our bodies is the highest amount of quality of output that we can get out of it. If we are building our bodies and our systems off of unhealthy or fabricated or plastic food, then all we get is unhealthy, degraded, uh, poor results. Now, if you go into a store, everything that comes in a box or a package, like just go down the aisles, look at the ingredients. In almost every single one of them, it is shocking how many things are just a recombination of like four ingredients. Four ingredients plus a bunch of chemicals, plus some color, plus 
you know, different textures. It's something you will see in every single one of them, almost without fail. Corn, enriched wheat, enriched wheat flour, soy, and sugar. What are the most subsidized foods in the country? What are the top four? Corn, soybeans, sugar, and wheat. That is not a coincidence. The reason the cheap foods are unhealthy is because they are subsidized, is because they are made the least costly by the United States government. They are the four top ingredients because they are the four most subsidized. What are the consequences of these foods being in everything? Heart disease, diabetes, obesity, inflammation and joint pain, as we are, and as we are finding more and more proof of, cancers. Do, does this need, do I need to list out what the top medical problems in the U.S. are? I feel like I shouldn't have to. Now, a lot of people have very different views on this. This is another rabbit hole in and unto itself for anybody who wants to explore this, but it's very, very fascinating, and there is a lot of incredible study and research that has happened in like the last 10 to 20 years that has proven so many of these massive evidence for so many of these different theories that literally has just not spread out into the world. They've stayed in very isolated communities and it's not spread even in the medical community at large. The, the staying power of the food pyramid of so many of the misconceptions that have actually been withdrawn, that have actually been within the scientific community have been recognized as not true. What causes high cholesterol? What leads to heart disease? So many of these things have had significant changes in the last 10 to 15 years, and it's just not known. Um, but uh, I, I, might, I might just recommend It Starts With Food. It's a really, really amazing piece, a uh, book, excuse me, and it's likely to make you think very, very differently about it. High carb and grain and corn diets. Here, here's an indication. Here's an indication that there is such a contradiction in what we think we know or what we say is true and then what we actually do, specifically with how bad that food pyramid is. You know, the, I kind of, my framing is that the only time I should be eating heavy carbs is if I am about to burn a ton of energy because that's what I'm doing. I'm overloading my system with very fast-burning sugar uh, short-term energy spikes. So if I eat it while I'm sitting on the couch, my body just has to pump itself full of I'm not burning it. So I have to just pump myself full of insulin, increase my heart rate to process as much of this into fatty tissue as possible because I'm being overloaded. I can't use like 95% of what I'm eating. But just, a, just an example to kind of, without actually going to this whole topic for another hour, um, is there something called foie gras. It's F-O-I-S-G-R-A-S, but it is a delicacy, and it's a extremely fatty, like, duck liver. I think it actually applies to other animals as well, um, but I, I know foie gras specifically is at least uh, a extremely fatty, it's, it, it's literally to induce fatty liver disease in ducks. And the way that they do this 
is by force-feeding them nothing but corns and grains. It makes their uh, muscle tissue incredibly fat. It diseases up their livers. It, uh, it's unbelievably unhealthy for the duck. But this is how you create that delicacy. This is how you just pump them full of fat is you force feed them corn and grains. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing with like our cattle and stuff is we feed them these things specifically to make them fat and unhealthy because it's delicious. Yet you will turn right around and get advice on what to be eating and your cornflakes are heart healthy? Something to think about. But at the end of the day, this is all caused by manipulation and a breakdown of prices. Now, I have many, many episodes where I have just gone on and on about prices. They are the most information-dense pieces of, like, of economic indicators that exist anywhere. A price in a natural economy with sound money is a, an extrapolation of billions or maybe even trillions of transactions all related to each other, extending from a previous transaction, uh, acquiring and translating forward the values of every single individual, the skills and the knowledge of every single individual moving step by step through the economy to the point that every single transaction can be connected to every single other transaction in the world. It is the live, never-ending attempt to boil down all of the choices, all of the skin-in-the-game trade-offs, all of the values and hopes and knowledge and the state of the supply and its comparison to the demands of everyone who participates in the economy down into a single number. The Use of Knowledge in Society by F.A. Hayek is absolutely the piece to dig into on this concept. Prices are the ultimate balancing force and they are a tool of communicating information. And without the price, it is, it is the pretense of knowledge that we can decide what the prices are without knowing what the prices are actually indicating to us. It is an impossibility. The price gives us information which is 100% inaccessible and unknowable without the proper conditions to produce a market price. Therefore, the idea that we would set a price from the top down or that we would manipulate prices is to say that we can know something that we can't know until the price tells us. I mean, hell, most of us don't know our own values until it's actually put on the line. It's the difference between somebody saying, I'd bet you a million dollars that this, this, and this, and then somebody actually putting a million dollars on the table to see if that happens or not. Just saying it doesn't at all align with what people actually do when, their skin is, when they have skin in the game. So when the government prints money to fix prices or subsidize something to give the illusion that something specific does not have a cost, or that we're going to just cover up the imbalance. It's like treating the symptom without ever addressing or even understanding that there is a core problem, that there is a cause here. That's why I use the analogy in the past of it's like an altimeter in a plane. The 
price is indicating, you know, suddenly we're in a dive. We're all in this plane together and suddenly the plane has tipped, uh, has tipped nose down and we are flying toward the ground. The altimeter is telling us that there's something wrong, that we should pull up. That's what the price does. It tells us that something is out of line with the reality of the economy, that something is wrong. Now, it would be really uncomfortable to do that. Everybody's leaning forward in their chair. Everybody's adjusted their stuff. And if we pull back on this thing very quickly, it would be incredibly uncomfortable. People would be jerked all around the plane. Stuff would fall out of the overhead compartments. So what happens? The government comes in and breaks the gauge. So it looks like we're flying level. We're all still going to die, but at least we never have to admit ourselves, admit to ourselves that we've made a mistake. At least we don't have to change our behavior to correct for the fact that reality is going to slap us in the face very soon. Wouldn't those things be very uncomfortable and inconvenient for us to actually have austerity, to actually be frugal, to actually realize that we have indebted ourselves for the next 30 generations and that we are screwed. We do not have the value to actually make up for it. Let us just print ourselves into a drunkenness that, allow, that allows us to forget that all of the problems we have created are here and that we have to pay for them. Let's break the altimeter and we will drunkenly cheer all the way to the ground. Now, the last thing I want to hit, because this has been a crazy long guy's take now, is savings. One of the most poisonous consequences of fiat money is the fact that it incentivizes and actually rewards everyone going into debt. Debt is a horrible trap. It is like building a cage around your own life, and it is a huge restriction on all of your choices, your options, on your ability to actually live by your own values. Another one that I would recommend for this, uh, which I have a really obnoxiously long um, a rant on is uh, I think it's guys take like 36 if I'm not mistaken but it, it's, it's guys take walking tall I'll actually have the notes excuse me the links to all of this use of knowledge in society uh, walking tall the other one I mentioned I'll, I'll go back and figure out which one it was but I'll have all of this in the show notes so that uh, you can dig into it if you want to hit these ideas a little deeper but savings is our measure of independence the amount of savings we have is literally the runway that allows us to quit a job that doesn't value us, leave a company that treats us poorly, get out from under a boss who is irresponsible and foolish, or wants us to do something that threatens our values or our ethics. It is our runway to make the choice to stop doing something frivolous, demeaning, or that makes you wildly unhappy in order to find something that truly matters, to do something that actually fulfills you in your life. It is the freedom to walk away from that which does not value you or that which does not align with your values. It determines whether or not you can say no when your boss tells you to do something immoral or unethical, when you are told to lie, cover up some unflattering numbers or realities, tells you to mistreat a customer or another employee or ignore them. And what does that do to your psyche? What does that do to a person internally? To be trapped, to instead have debt 
which means the cost of saying no, of not throwing your values out the window, is to lose your, lose your entire livelihoods. That that authority figure might decide whether you eat this week. What seeds of resentment and hate does that build up in society? That a relationship between your employer or a business that should be cooperative, that should be two independent agents working out a relationship to mutually benefit each other, becomes an adversarial one, becomes a, a source of resentment where you are trapped underneath them and you have to do what they say because you don't, you don't have the runway, you don't have the buffer to stand up and say, go screw yourself. I'm not going to lose, I'm not going to give up my values in order to just get another paycheck because I have savings. If I am in debt, I am stuck. I am in a cage and my barrier to exit is, my, is mine and my family's livelihood. And how does that change what I think about myself? When I start thinking about how awful the, my situation is and how the world has done something terrible to me and that I resent myself and my situation because I have no control over it. it makes me feel like a coward for not standing up when I should have. That I have to choose between my values and my morals and my family's material livelihood. That is no choice. That is not freedom. That is a trap. That is why the culture degrades. That is why values rot. That is why resentment grows at every level throughout the economy. And this happens across the board. And it trickles down and permeates into everything. The whole world is in debt. And the entire fiat system has been rewarding at the direct cost of savings, at the direct cost of that tool which would set us free. It has incentivized us all to become prisoners to our situation, to our political system, to the rat race that governs our lives. The only solution to this is getting rid of fiat money, is leaving the system, is using a sound monetary good. There has not yet been a technology, a monetary asset, that has been immune to this control. Bitcoin may very well be the first thing that has obsoleted the control, the centralization, and the rulers of money. It is very hard to convey and even harder to overstate how revolutionary that could actually be. But I have already gone on for 51 freaking minutes on this guy's take. So we are going to close that one out. Don't forget to check out Guys Take 